together, ask for the Lord's help. Holy Father, thank you for bringing us together in your house, in relationship with you, in a restored relationship because of what Christ has done for us. We know we approach boldly because we know you have received us into your family as your children. We pray now that you would help us to understand uh, who you are, who we are, how we are to relate to you as your children. Help us to make sense of that um, and help us to be faithful to obey these things which we discern in your word. In your name, amen. All right, well, sometimes, sometimes when you're defining a word, trying to figure out what a word means, it's helpful to ask yourself, what's the opposite of that word that can help you figure out a definition if you know the opposite? So, for example, if you were asked... What is the opposite of love? What is the opposite of love? I think most of us instinctively, we just think hate. Hate is the opposite of love. The more I thought about that this week, though, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not convinced that hate is the opposite of of love. I mean, if you love someone, then you feel passionately about them. Right? If you love someone, you think about them all the time. They're on your mind, and you're thinking of ways that you can engage with them and bless them and serve them. That's, it's a very interactive relationship when you, when you love someone. Perhaps the opposite of that is indifference. Right? Because when you hate someone, you're actually still thinking about them lots. You're still feeling passionately about them. But when you're indifferent to someone... You just don't care. You just don't care what they do. You don't care what happens to them. And that kind of feels to me more like the opposite of love. Okay, well, what's the opposite of grace? Grace. I think many Christians instinctively think the opposite of grace is law. Right? Those are viewed as two contrasting, mutually exclusive concepts. It's either grace or it's law, but not both. They are opposite from each other. And I don't think that that is correct. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's biblical. Grace, grace is, is what? It's something that's undeserved, but, but freely given, right? That's grace. So it seems to me that the opposite of grace is not law. The opposite of grace is wages, right? Wages are earned, right? You, you work hard for your wages, and, and once your work is done, you are entitled to, you deserve fiscal compensation, right? That's how wages work. You earn your wages. Grace is different. Grace is receiving something that you didn't deserve, that you didn't work for. Not wages, the opposite of wages, a, a, a free gift. Okay, well, one more. What is the opposite of law, right? We've already said that the opposite um, of law is not grace, but what is it? What's the opposite of law? Well, the opposite of law is anarchy, right? The opposite of having guidelines by which everyone must abide is to have no guidelines and everyone just do what's right in their own eyes, in their own heart, right? That's the opposite of law. Okay, so keep that in mind. As we think about the role of law in the Christian life today, keep in mind that the opposite of love is indifference, is to not care. 
And the opposite of grace is wages, is to earn what you're paid. And the opposite of law is anarchy, is no law at all. Okay, now I think we're ready to read the passage. Romans 7, and I'm reading verses 1 to 6. Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married man is bound by law, uh, sorry, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, well, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Okay, at the very outset of this sermon, I need to just quickly define two words that are going to be important for the sermon. Okay, the first word is legalism. Legalism, you've heard that word. What does it mean? Very simply, legalism is the idea that our standing before God is impacted by our keeping of the law. Okay, it works It works both ways. If you're a legalist, you think you're standing before God is impacted in a positive way if you're keeping the law. Then you're contributing to your salvation. And then the negative side, you think you're standing before God is negatively impacted, is diminished when you break the law. So it's up to your law keeping or your law breaking determines your standing before God. That's legalism. That's what legalism is. Is. And the second term we need to define is antinomianism. Big word, but easy to understand. You can define that word if you break it down. Anti, right, or contrary, opposed to, anti. And namas is simply the Greek word for law. Anti-law, right? Antinomianism is anti-law. Antinomians believe that the law of God is no longer relevant to the Christian life. It's not relevant. They suggest that since we are saved by grace through faith, then it does not matter what we do. That's the antinomian position. It doesn't matter if we keep the law because our salvation has no connection to our law keeping. So we're released from the law. We're free to do whatever we want. Let me ask you up front. Is antinomianism wrong? Isn't it true that we are saved by grace through faith? Isn't it true that even if we do fall into sin, that that doesn't wreck our salvation because God's grace is what saves us, not our works? Well, that is true. So it's easy to see why antinomianism has historically been so appealing to Christians. There's some 
truth in it, but ultimately it's unbiblical because it fails to recognize the important ongoing role of the law in the Christian life. This was the point of disagreement between the great Martin Luther and John Calvin that I referred to earlier. They both agreed that the law functions to show us that we're sinners. Right? Because we can't live up to it. We know that. The law points that out. The law makes that obvious. And they both agreed that the law functions to point us to Jesus. Because he did live up to it. Right? So in that sense, the law points, tells us we're sinful and that Jesus is not sinful. That he perfectly kept the law. But Calvin went on to say, yeah, but once we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone... Then, the law functions as an ongoing guide for our lives. And Martin Luther said, no, 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 wait a minute. That's putting ourselves back under the bondage of the law. We have been freed from that kind of thinking. We've been freed from the law. We don't need to place ourselves back under it. And they had a disagreement about that. Right away, at the outset of the Reformation, the issue of the law and how it relates to the Christian life was somewhat contested, but as a matter of fact, Paul was dealing with that question about how the law relates to the Christian life way back in the first century. That's what this section of Romans is all about. So Paul graciously begins his discussion of this difficult topic by making a rather obvious point that everyone on all sides can agree with. His first point is simply this, dead people are no longer under the law. Okay? And I think at that point, he, he, he's confident that we're all with him. He's, he's carried everybody along with the argument so far, right? If you're dead, you are released from your obligation to keep the law. That's not controversial. Uh, so, and his, he even gives a little illustration. When two people are married, if one of the spouses dies, then the very nature of their relationship is changed. It's different now because death is brought into the picture and death changes relationships. Okay, so according to this analogy that Paul's giving us, who or what dies when we come to saving faith in Christ? Not the law. It's not that the law dies. It's us, right? Did you follow that, that, that line of argument? We die when we come to Christ. Paul makes that point explicitly in Romans 6, just the chapter previous. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Through that death, we died. Through that death, the nature of our relationship to God's law changes. Not because the law changed, but because we did. That is an absolutely crucial point if we're going to understand the role of the law in the Christian life. Regenerate people, people who have come to faith in Christ, relate to the law differently than unregenerate people, people who have not come to Christ. Right? Before coming to Christ, we are condemned under the law. The law is over us and it's crushing us. So how has my relationship to the law changed now that I've been baptized into the death of Christ? Paul answers that question. He says, likewise, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. 
We used to belong not to Christ, but to the law. Therefore, we were in bondage to sin because we couldn't keep the law. But if the law is good, then why does belonging to the law mean bondage to sin? Well, just just think of an illustration of how that works. There, There are laws about how fast we can drive our cars, right? And we are under those laws here in Alberta. And if we violate those laws, then we're subject to the consequences. Sometimes we get away with it, but the reality is if you speed, you are subject to the consequences. We all know that. You're not, right? No one's getting new information right now. And the government has very thoughtfully posted these signs along the road. I'm sure you've seen them. They, they tell us the specific speed that we are allowed to go for each road. It varies, right? The law has been written. The law has been revealed. The law has been posted publicly. And we are without an excuse, right? If an officer pulls you over and finds you to be a transgressor of the law, you are without excuse. Well, Romans chapter 1 tells us that God explicitly has done the same thing with his moral law. In Romans 1, if you've been reading through the plan, if you read that this past week, right, you read about this, that God has revealed his law to us. Who's us? All of us. Humanity. God has a law. He has posted it. He has revealed it so that we are without excuse when we violate it. That's what Romans 1 says. But here's the essential difference between my analogy and, uh, and God's law, we are actually able to obey the speed limit law, right? You, you might choose not to, but that's a choice. You can obey it. But the Bible says that because of our rebellious hearts, we have made ourselves unable to obey the law of God. Because of our sin, we, are, we, are, we have broken our own hearts such that we're incapable of keeping God's law. We know the law, but we can't keep it. And therefore, being under the law means being in bondage to sin. But Paul says that we no longer belong to the law. We're no longer under the law. Now we belong to Christ. And what's the purpose of belonging to Christ instead of belonging to the law? Is it it so that we can now do whatever we want and still be saved? Did did God save us in order that we might live our lives free from any sort of moral standard? Of course not. God isn't calling people into his eternal kingdom so that they can ignore the law and sin all they want until they get there. In verse 4, Paul says that this transfer from, from belonging to the law and being under the law to belonging to Jesus and being under Jesus, that happened in order that we may bear fruit for God. That is why you were transferred from the law to Christ in order to bear fruit for God. That is your mission statement, to bear fruit for God. That is an incredible statement. You're no longer under law. You're no longer enslaved to sin so that you can bear fruit for God. Jesus had something to say about that. You remember John 15? Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. That sounds like law, doesn't it? We're talking about commandments. 
keeping Jesus' commandments just as he has kept the Father's commandments. That's how you bear fruit for God. So that's the amazing, seemingly paradoxical point. We no longer belong to the law. We belong to Christ. And we belong to Christ so that we can bear fruit for God. And we bear fruit for God by keeping the law. The law is still alive. The law is still good. But our relationship to it changed because we died. The law is not a means by which we secure a right relationship with God that only comes through Jesus. But once we have a right relationship with God, obeying his commandments is the way that we bear fruit for him. That is the essence of the Christian life of discipleship. We reject legalism. We reject it. Keeping the law has nothing to do with your salvation. But we also reject antinomianism because we know that the law is still good. Fulfilling the law is what enables us to bear fruit for God. And that is the thing that we were made to do. And then in verse 5, Paul reminds us about the kind of fruit we used to bear before we were united to Christ in our own flesh. By our own efforts to keep the law, we bore the fruit of death. And again, notice the contrast Paul's making between the role of the law for non-believers and the role of the law for believers. The law is the same in both cases. So God's law plus our own efforts and our own strength equals the fruit of death. That's not the law's fault. That's my fault. That's my failure. But God's law, the very same law that bears the fruit of death in unbelievers, bears fruit for the glory of God in our lives once we're regenerated by the Spirit. All right, well, we said an awful lot about the ongoing role of the law in the Christian life. But the final question is, we have to answer is, what does that mean? What, do, does that mean we have to keep all the laws in the Bible? Do we just have to keep some of them? Which ones? Which ones are relevant to the Christian life today? Some people seem to think that the Bible is basically full of laws. It's packed full of all kinds of laws, some of which are relevant today, some of which are not. And so you just pick and choose the ones that you want to obey. But the Bible itself never indicates that. God's law is eternal. It doesn't change. It's always relevant. Okay, but then why do Christians not keep all the laws in the Old Testament? That's a good question. That question would take a whole sermon itself to answer, but the short answer is because different laws serve different purposes throughout the history of salvation. That doesn't mean they used to be valid and now they're not anymore. It just means that they served a particular function. right? So it's helpful to think of the Old Testament law in three categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral. God gave the Israelites the civil and the ceremonial laws because they were his chosen people. They were the means through which he was going to demonstrate his steadfast love and faithfulness to the world. And so they had to be different. They had to be set apart. And they had these special laws that they were supposed to keep in order to symbolically represent their relationship to God as his chosen people and to show how serious sin is and how they had to, couldn't relate to him unless there was an atoning sacrifice. But those laws had a specific purpose during a specific period of salvation history. They were pointing forward to something better that was coming. We talked about that when we celebrated the Lord's Supper. They were foreshadowing. 
the true and perfect and eternal atonement that was going to be made by the Lord Jesus. And once he came and fulfilled that role, there was no need to continue the symbolic sacrificial system. That doesn't mean those laws are invalid or or irrelevant, but functionally those laws belong to a, a different period of salvation history. As the people of the new covenant, we no longer have to adhere to the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law, but there is a component of the Old Testament law called the moral law, and those laws reveal God's eternal, unchanging moral character, his righteousness, his, his mercy, his justice, his holiness, on and on. And, and, and the moral law is not just for the people of Israel, but God's moral law applies to all people for all time. So when God says, thou shalt not lie, that's not just for Israel. He means that for everyone, for all time, lying is wrong. That's a, that's a, that's a universally binding moral command from God to his people. That's what we mean when we talk about the law that Christians keep in order to bear fruit for God. We mean all the moral commandments of God, all of them in the Old Testament and in the New Testament All of them, any commandment, commandments that relate to our sexual ethics, commandments that relate to our use of our resources, commandments that relate to our attitude and how we think about others, commandments that relate to our words and how we speak, every aspect of our life brought into conformity with God's commandments. That is what discipleship is all about. And how do we do that? How are we able to keep God's moral law? Well, in some ways, that's the crux of the issue, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we've died to the law through the body of Christ. We belong to him so that we might bear fruit for God. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we keep the moral law? The, the Israelites were not very successful at keeping the moral law. From Genesis all the way through Malachi, over and over again, the Israelites fail to keep God's law. So what makes the church different? The answer is found in verse 6. Paul writes that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. The power to obey the law doesn't come from the law, it comes from the Spirit. Remember, that's what God said in Jeremiah 31. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Right? God doesn't make the law null and void or irrelevant, but what he does do is he writes it on our hearts so that we can obey it. Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. You see, in the new covenant, God reaches in and writes his law on our hearts. And then through the power of his spirit, he enables us to keep it, to obey his law to walk in his statutes, to obey his rules. That's the role of the law in the Christian life. We're not under the old written code, but we are empowered to keep the law through the work of the Spirit. The fact that God has given us the law and the fact that God expects us to keep it, that's not not unloving. Unloving would be indifference. Unloving would be God saying, I don't care what you do, do whatever you want to do. But he hasn't done that. In his love... He's given us the law, said, here's the path of blessing, now walk in it. The giving of the law is not instead of grace, 
The giving of the law is an expression of God's grace. And following the law isn't a burden. Not having the law would be a burden, but following the law, that's a blessing and a joy. Let's pray together. Holy God, thank you for your law. Thank you that it functions as a guide for us on our journey to heaven. I pray that we would use it rightly, that we wouldn't abuse your law, that we wouldn't try to use it as a means to earn your favor or to pay you back for our salvation. We recognize that that's not why you gave us the law. I pray that we would follow it as a guideline and as a path to blessing. I pray that we would find deep joy in obedience and faithfulness to you. I pray that we would walk wherever you lead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.